Hello and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Jonathan Porritt, where we'll be talking about his new book, A Hope in Hell. We'll be discussing a bit of an overview of the environment. And this episode, I have to say, is a bit darker than our normal episodes, but we do need to talk about the real challenges facing us, such as sea level rise and temperature rise. But fear not, we will also be talking about the positives, like new options for energy and some really fantastic things that are being done around the world. It's important to remember that sustainability doesn't just relate to the environment, it relates to your finances as well. That's why we switched to Beans Accountants. Beans operate on a package system, so you always know where you stand. We halved our accountancy costs when we moved to them, and one of our associates moved to them as well and reduced theirs by two thirds. With free tax advice, accountancy support, and everything else they offer, you can't go wrong. So make sure you check out Beans Accountants in the description below, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello there, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we've come here to talk in part about your new book, yep. which is I Hope in Hell, A Decade to Confront the Climate Emergency. And we met at a sustainability event, maybe a, I think probably a year, or so, a year or so ago now. And I was really impressed by what you were saying. And I was really impressed by the book. Well, I was so impressed I bought the book. And then I was incredibly impressed by the book as well, because I've read an awful lot of books by various people on this issue, on the climate. And I often find that they're a bit esoteric they don't actually really talk about the solutions or the problems in a great deal they just right. sort of allude yeah. to them yeah whereas you actually go into a huge amount of detail and i've picked up you can see by my sticky notes here <laughs> I can. i'm very up, impressed at that oh thank you i've <laughs> color coded them as well but i've just picked up on a few points with from within the book to kind of emphasize some of what we're going to talk about yeah because i think those examples are really fantastic and they just help put things in perspective i was thinking what would be good to start with is if you could explain a bit about your background you've done a huge range of around a huge amount of different things. Yep. And it'd be fantastic to know a bit about your journey and your story, I think, to sort of set the scene. Yes, no, it's a long journey, that's for sure. Um, so I think I was actually incredibly lucky to begin with because in 1972, I just came across some books, things like Blueprint for Survival, Limits to Growth. And I can't even remember why I started reading this stuff, but once you start, it's quite difficult to stop. And that just got me straight into the whole big story about the environment and sustainability. So I joined the Green Party then in 74. So effectively, I've had kind of 50 years of banging away about this stuff. And I've always tried to do it, sometimes with NGOs, non-governmental organizations like Friends of the Earth, WWF. I'm still very involved in the NGO world with uh, Trust for Conservation volunteers and others. Sometimes I've been able to do it with government, which I must admit was probably the most frustrating time of my life. So between <laughs> 2000 and 2009, I was chair of the Sustainable Development Commission, which advises, advised um, the government of the day. And then I've also, since setting up the forum in 1996, tried to work with business. So what I'm really interested in is what are the opportunities to shift key players in society, civil society, government, business, investment community, media, what are the key opportunities to shift them? Because none of, none of them is shifting fast enough. Mm -hmm. So I suppose, although at the end of 50 years, I'm, I'm hardly content with the pace of change. At <laughs> least I can see how things are now beginning to move in the right direction. Mm -hmm. No, that's good. I mean, it, it's good to see that people are moving, but I totally understand your frustration. And I, and I see it as well. I mean, there's so many examples where 
in my professional career, we go and advise clients, businesses otherwise, or, or, the, or even the government as well. And we often find that either they don't get it, yeah. they don't get the bigger sort of concept and issue yeah. behind what we're trying to do, or they're kind of so busy with other things that it sort of gets always the something else. Always exactly. something else. Yeah. And that's one of the real one of the real challenges. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. And they are very inventive at coming up with what that something else is. Yes, exactly. And we all the time. And mm -hmm. it's either to do with oh well cost is a bit of a factor at the moment or it's to do with feasibility in a particular project, whatever it is, or, well, we know this is important, but right now we've got other things to focus on. We'll get round to that one in a few years' time. That's it. But when you, and that's what makes it so annoying because when you start looking at the environment in a holistic sense, you realise that actually it can tackle the majority of the other issues we're Absolutely. facing. And really it has to be kind of the, the central force and driving principles behind the sustainable development or energy strategies yeah. or whatever it is we need. Yeah. And I think you can really see that now, which is what makes now a really important time. Mm. Uh, so we're currently in uh, July 2020. Um, 2022 rather, losing track I of my years. I check. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and you can just see so many things starting to fray around the world. All it takes is a few little additional pressures and things start to unravel. So I think hopefully it's going to reach a point where people realise and start to you know, ramp up this change. But as you say, it's been incredibly slow so far, too slow. Yeah. yeah and we yeah. need to get yeah. on with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is difficult for people to get it at that very high systemic level it's the system as a whole it's not any of the symptoms in and of themselves it's just the nature of our economic system that is mm -hmm. driving all of this disruption this volatility this impending collapse in many cases and as you just said you i mean not not just small things when you get a big thing mm -hmm. like the war in ukraine yeah whoa that accelerates all of these different issues around food around energy around security and then suddenly people have to look at that system in a very different way. Absolutely yeah. and I think it's, as sad as it is sometimes those things can be incredibly helpful to bring those things to they light. They can be yeah. Um, I mean the war in Ukraine is obviously a terrible thing and my, my wife's Russian so you know we our family live on the border right so we're quite aware of what's going on yeah. um, in reality there so those things can help move the narrative in an important way, but the trouble is it can also derail it because all of a sudden yeah. it goes, let's park that narrative and let's yeah, focus on exactly. this. And that's where you end up in this, this exactly. frustrating situation, yeah. whereas actually the solutions are all kind of in, in one area. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on that, one of the things that I found very interesting in the book and that you find to, seem to find quite frustrating uh, was the Paris Climate Agreement. And I found that incredibly interesting because whilst I obviously know about it, it's not something I've read into in great detail, so I was, I've always kind of seen it as this messiah of um, resolving our problems. <laughs> yeah, no, um, and actually, that doesn't appear to be the case at all. <laughs> well, I feel really conflicted about this because the, the Paris Agreement, 2015, it was, as I said, it was, a, it was by far the best agreement that had been reached up until that time. Mm -hmm. So there have been, you know, 25 years more of trying to get an international agreement. So the Paris Agreement was in that regard, extremely significant. But by virtue of the nature of the agreement, which each country offered up its own timetable for cutting emissions of these greenhouse mm -hmm. gases, so there was no top-down target set. Each country made its own offer. And when you totted that all up, 
assuming that those governments would then have delivered on their promises, which is a very big assumption and probably now um, not one that you'd want to pursue too much seven years on from Paris, it still would have taken us to a very high average temperature increase by the end of this century. Mm -hmm. And whichever way you cut this, you know, we're sort of looking at ideally no more than a 1.5 degree centigrade increase by the end of the century, absolutely no more than 2 degrees centigrade. The Paris Agreement still would have taken us to more than 3 degrees by the mm. end of the century. So yes, best agreement to date, yeah. but it still essentially would have crashed human civilization. Yeah. So when people were celebrating this amazing thing, a lot of climate scientists were sort of saying, okay, let's celebrate, but let's just be a little bit cautious about this because this is just the start of a long, long, long process still to go. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, pretty much what you've just said here, you know, at three, three degrees change is essentially game over for human civilization, which meant confusingly that the Paris Agreement was both an incredible breakthrough and a death <laughs> sentence, not just for small island nations, but pretty much for the whole of humankind. Yes, yep, no, that, that just about gets it right, actually. I mean, death sentence might be a bit hard, but by the time you I mean, you know, when you look at what is likely to start happening at even a two degree centigrade rise, I mean, the way of connecting people with this, I mean, I think, I do honestly think that a, a, the majority of people now can see today mm -hmm. in the world as it is that just stuff is going wrong yeah. with quickly. the climate mm -hmm. very quickly. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we're recording in the middle of a heat wave, so don't get carried away by one heat wave, but people know that temperatures are rising around the world it, with extraordinary speed. Wildfires, floods, droughts, these extreme storms that we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. So intuitively, people know that the climate is messed up yeah. and that stuff is really going badly wrong. And that's, this is where you need to get back to this temperature reference point. All of that is happening with just a 1.1 degree centigrade rise. So when you talk about going to 1.5 or 2 or then God help us to 3, mm -hmm. you can see how <clears throat> all of that then begins to ramp up to the point where economies can't function. The costs are so huge. The disruption yeah. is massive. Nature is hammered to the point where it can no longer function in the way that we'd like. Mm -hmm. So I know these temperatures, these little People talk about these tiny, tiny little temperature increases because they're used to turning their thermostat up or down by one or two, sometimes more, degrees centigrade. Or they're used to picking a holiday because they can get an average temperature of three, four degrees centigrade higher than the place where they are at the moment. But average temperature increases of this kind disrupt climate patterns in a dramatic way. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. That's it. And I think but it, the other thing is, whilst we're getting these heat waves, um, the impact, there's so many other ways that you're starting to see the impact. So for example, this week I was with some farmers and they've managed this piece, their family have managed this piece of land since the 1800s. And this year is the first year they've ever, it's the earliest they've ever done the hay harvest, ever, in wow. that time. You see that And you hair. also see, you know, with this heat wave. Where is, which part of the UK is this? Uh, it's down in Sussex. Right. And they were saying, as well, sorry, not they were saying, but on the news you've seen that, you know, potentially we may reach 40 degrees. Yeah. Um, in, here in the UK, and that's the first time ever that we yeah. will have reached that yeah. temperature. Yeah. So you can see those 
um, boundaries consistently yeah. being broken, you can see things coming forward. And it's it's just making it more and more tangible and more and more difficult for people for people to dispute some of those. Issues. And that link to food is actually really interesting. That particular point because people think, oh, more sunshine, then the crops will be doing better and the harvest will be bigger. And of course, what we're realizing now is that extreme heat mm-hmm. does not lead to a good harvest outcome in many yeah. instances. The harvest in the UK this year is going to be significantly down on what it would normally be because without any rainfall those grains of wheat or barley whatever it is they're not developing in the way that they would normally do at this time the in fact extreme heat suppresses the growth mm-hmm. in those crops so your farmer your farmer friends talking about that that they are beginning to see the direct impact of a combination of extreme dry weather with much higher temperatures mm-hmm. and of course oddly enough now in the UK punctuated often by mad summer storms, rainstorms, where you get rain just bucketing down for very short periods of time with increased flooding and runoff from crops and devastation often to towns and cities. So, you know, the whole, yeah, it's just a pattern of disruption. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's, it's really troubling. And I think, you know, again, another point here you've got is around just to help people sort of grasp the scale of the issue. So there's a point here about the carbon budget. So essentially this says here that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have worked out a so-called carbon budget, which is essentially how many billion tonnes of CO2 more we can release into the atmosphere um, without having a reasonable chance of significant temperature change. So this is still to limit us to 1.5 degrees. So to have a 66% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees centigrade by 2100, our remaining carbon budget is just 420 billion tonnes. That will run out by 2028 on our current course. On our current course, yeah. Which is no time at all. I know. And then also, you point out here that in 2018, emissions were 55.3 billion tonnes. Yeah. So it's, it's shocking when you see those figures next to each yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it is really difficult to cope with that because we, we're just not on top of reducing emissions yet. Everybody hoped that COVID would kind of help a bit in terms of shifting our mindsets that we would realize that a shock to our systems like COVID should prepare us for other shocks. And everybody thought that because of the economic downturn that it brought about, which was devastating, of course, for for any number of countries around the world, that our emissions would then not go back up again after COVID. But you won't be surprised to know that did not happen. In fact, emissions are now pretty much back to where they were pre-COVID. But they didn't even really drop very much. They I hardly mean, they dropped, dropped anything. By 5 to 7% precisely. by some estimates. So it's nothing, really. And I mean, you know, and, and the thing is as well, whilst there is this shift, you know, one example people I often hear is people saying, well, people will just work from home. That's much better. There's less travel, all this kind of thing. And whilst that's true, it can actually make it can increase amounts of energy used as well because instead of having one office, yeah. which has got you know lights and uh, and aircon hopefully and very kind of thing and heating, efficiently managed, you would hope. You'd hope. Um, but now that's everybody's houses. Exactly. So you may have instead of having an office of a hundred people, you've yeah. got hundred homes yeah. that now are having all of their lights on, people cooking, <laughs> all of this kind of thing. So it's kind of it's shifted. Um, yeah, that shift use. in the pattern of work, the home office kind of balance is. It is beneficial. The figures now demonstrate that it has made a bit of a difference to the average 
carbon footprint from the average working week. Mm -hmm. But it's nothing like at the scale that people would want to point to because it's not having that dramatic an impact on emissions. I mean, the, in that regard, the only thing that drives down those emissions is changing the source of the energy. Yes. Whether it's being used in an office or in a factory or in a home, wherever it might be. If you can get all the carbon-based energy sources out of the system and increase the amount of renewable um, sources of energy, electricity in particular, then that is the that's the start of a solution to the bigger system issue. Mm -hmm. And time for a little bit of optimism here, do you reckon? Yes, yeah, we can inject what, some. What do you reckon? <laughs> so, <laughs> just because these things can get very gloomy. Um, the renewable story in the UK and in other countries is utterly remarkable. Mm -hmm. And genuinely, most people don't spot this. They do not know what's happening. But we are, year by year, we are getting rid of our fossil fuel-based energy sources, coal in particular, which is on the way out, although delayed a little bit because of the war in Ukraine. Um, we're slowly seeing that we need to get beyond the use of gas to generate electricity, and we're ramping up investments in renewables as fast as any nation in the world. So we're already now able to point to the fact that 50% of our electricity here in the UK comes from renewables, 50%. And within the next five years, all being well in terms of these new investments being delivered, particularly with offshore wind, that will push up close to 80%, 85% of our electricity. Now, tons of energy is used that isn't about electricity and transport and heating and manufacturing and so on, but you've got to start there. Yeah. And this is a really, this is genuinely such a good story. I quote from a former chief scientific advisor um, in Bayes, it was called, a, it had a different departmental name in those days, a guy called David Mackay, who described the idea of this, of renewables providing the backbone of our electricity generation system here in the UK. He described it as a dangerous illusion. Mm -hmm. And that's just seven years ago. Yeah. So you know, things, you know, things do happen, they do change. Absolutely, they do. It's, and I think. Again, it's the, the range of things coming online to start to tackle this is really significant, you know, and, and people are starting to go, oh, yeah, well, well, some of these problems can accelerate the shift. So, for example, if we look at the rise in energy prices, loads of people I know um, yeah. are looking now at solar. Yeah. A lot, luckily, a lot of my family already have solar, but a lot of friends are going, oh, actually, yeah, it's something we really need to consider yeah. in our home. Some of my friends are retraining as solar engineers. And you know, three or four years ago, they, they weren't interested. Weren't even yeah. interested. Yeah, yeah. So there's that kind of um, societal shift there. But then there's also new technologies and new things being discovered all the time. So we do an episode with um, the Eden Project. Oh yeah. And I don't know if you've heard about their new geothermal. I project. have indeed. In fact, I was talking to Sir Tim Smith about it the oh, other really? day. Oh really? Yeah, oh, no, fantastic. He's, he's very excited about it, and it is a really interesting example of what happens when you think a bit laterally. You begin to Absolutely. think differently about how to make these energy solutions come alive. That's it. And I mean, and the thing is, the economics of that is fantastic. Yeah. It's got a very good economic return based on the early yeah. sort of information that's being provided. And potentially it can provide 20% of the UK's energy requirement. Potentially. Potentially. It's still need to be confirmed. <laughs> but No, no, it's, it's important. It, it's, a very, it's very, very interesting that that yeah. is something that again, a couple of years ago, wouldn't have been considered. I mean, I was reading Bill Gates' book, and he estimated that only 1% of 
of the UK's energy could come from geothermal if we tapped the entire land mass of the UK. Yeah. And this is one piece of rock in Cornwall, <laughs> potentially able to provide up to 20%. So that, again, is changing all the time. Yeah. And that's what I think can motivate and demotivate people because quite often you find that people are going, oh, well, it's hopeless. Or they're kind of so set in there being these amazing opportunities that will just appear. So why do they instantly go to the place that says this must be bullshit? I don't believe this. This can't be right. Why are people so quick to deny the potential for change that we've got in our midst now? Why do they do this? I don't know. I think maybe it's easier in a way. You know, it's easier to go, do you know what? I'm not going to worry about it. And I still, I still think people perceive it as this much longer-term issue. Well, that's certainly true. But even so, when you've got an economic upside, as you said, mm -hmm. and now with energy prices kind of out of control and likely to stay very high for, for the foreseeable future, frankly. Mm -hmm. So you've got the economic motivation. You've got the technology potential. I, I do not understand why people, so many people still find it easier to say no than yes. Yeah, it, it boggles my mind as well. And I think we find this a lot because we do a lot of development work, yeah. you know, master planning, um, sustainable strategies. And really, in a lot of cases, it's, we're set in our ways. This is one of the biggest issues I come across because what we're talking about when it comes to sustainability is it's, it's not an expensive solution. So I'll use water as an example because this week it's very topical because of the yeah, heat wave. Yeah. Um, I've been in Sussex dealing with the water neutrality issues. Right. Um, one of my business partners, Tapawa, he, who's been on the podcast as well, talking about this very topic, he's dealing with a lot of technological solutions and design solutions to this issue, which we're helping him with on a landscape front. Right. And actually, if you, if you take this water neutrality, so I'll give a bit of a background here. So Essentially, we're running out of water in the south of, the, of, of England. It doesn't just affect Sussex. It's going to affect yep. most of the south of yeah, England yeah. within the next year or two after this weather, maybe even sooner. So what's happening is, basically, the council has said, well, the, well Natural England rather, but it's forcing the councils to do this, have said that no more water can be used in this area. Yeah. So new development has to demonstrate it's water neutral. Yeah, exactly. And you think, oh, God, right, how the hell are we going to do that? Well, actually... If we start recycling our grey water, that can reduce the water use by about 50%. Add rainwater harvesting, that's up to 75-80%. We can then catch that water, clean it, and recharge the, the aquifer yep. with it, and then offset that last little bit by making other buildings more efficient. Very easy solution. If you try and bolt that on at the end, it's incredibly difficult. If you change the, change the structure and the layout and integrate that into the development, it's got massive implications because if you think you're reducing water use by 75%, that's 75% less piping, that's 75% less pumping capacity, mm. that's less impact on sewerage systems. And they're huge infrastructural maintenance costs, massive. So mm. that's some of your most expensive infrastructure that is either not needed yeah. or yeah, yeah. can be massively reduced. And that in turn reduces carbon energy cost, all those associated things too. So that's one example of how some of these policies make sense. The problem is a lot of developers and a lot of landowners know nothing about it or it's business as usual because it's always been done this way and we'll fix that later. That's just something we need to add in to fix the problem. But worse yet, it's not in the interests of the water companies to drive that revolution. Indeed, that's absolutely true. And the problem, that, and so their incentive is not 
mm -hmm. to achieve their return for shareholders on the basis of the lowest possible amount of water needed to deliver the highest possible services required. That's not their incentive mm -hmm. at all. Their incentive is completely different. If we can go on using any water available to us to deliver these services, that's what we'll do because that's how we can still drive our bills, which creates mm -hmm. the profits in turn. So we've structured these markets, and this is a really good example with water, in such ways to make sure that the, the primary players don't actually want to see the changes in the system that are needed. You can change that by regulation. Water companies in the UK here could be mandated to do developments of the kind that you're talking about and provide the water required for those developments in completely different ways. Mm -hmm. We could do it by regulation. We could do it by mandating. We'd be changing the remit through off-water of the water companies. Do we have a government that wants to do that? No. So mm -hmm. it takes a crisis. Every time it takes a crisis to get people to think about things differently. That's Every time. true, but I suppose the fortunate yes. thing is there's a lot of crisis. <laughs> well, there is, yeah, no, okay, I'm just, I'm yeah. still. I'm going on the positive side, there is a lot of crisis. That's so. <laughs> true, I like the idea that crisis is positive mm -hmm. because that is a real upside given how many crises we're going to be exactly. dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's it. But I mean, it is that shock to the system that does, you know, spur people. It is, no, no, I, you can't so deny that. It's, Terrible as it is, it, it does have a place. Yeah, and, it does. And, and in a way, it's better we get them now yeah. Yeah, and yeah. deal with this stuff now than, than all come at once in an absolutely yeah. catastrophic way later, yeah. um, even though that may also happen. So, <laughs> um, so should we talk a bit about, should we go into a positive note for a bit and talk a bit about how we can stop or run away climate change? Because you've got three very interesting sort of points yeah. You, yeah, yeah. You, you indicate here. So your, the solutions you sort of put forward are radical decarbonisation, Radical recarbonisation and radical political disruption. Yeah. So could you maybe expand a bit on some of those points? Yeah, and they're all. Our climate change debate is still obsessed with this terminology, and it is really difficult to get through the terminology. So decarbonisation is hardly a catchy concept, mm -hmm. but it. I, I've tried really hard to find different language for a lot of this stuff, but you just can't because what we're talking about is taking that carbon element from our use of raw materials, particularly energy, fossil fuels, taking that carbon element out of our economic development models. So decarbonizing. And we can do that. So I've mentioned already the renewable electricity mm -hmm. story, which is, a, which is the most powerful drive for decarbonizing because every unit of energy we get from renewables produces far fewer emissions of greenhouse gases than the same energy unit from fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So that's the classic. Beyond that, however, we've got lots of difficulties with transport, so moving to electric vehicles is beginning to help a lot, although it would be much more useful if we could move to integrated transport systems that didn't depend on any vehicles, yep. or fewer, far fewer vehicles. Heat is difficult to decarbonize, but we're beginning to work out that heat pumps which are electrically driven, mm -hmm. and therefore as we electrify our grid, we've got a fossil fuel, a less intensive fossil fuel system than we have at the moment with gas. Manufacturing, I mean, honestly, one of the things that's going on at the moment is all these, what are called hard to abate sectors, so steel, cement, shipping, aviation, 
chemicals, they're all now focused on this net zero trajectory over the next 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, okay, you have to just accept that a lot of it is, is probably a bit manic and a bit wild and a bit over-enthusiastic, but every single one of those sectors now is working out what it would take to get to net zero carbon by 2050. Five years ago, they were barely interested. Mm -hmm. So that is happening. So decarbonization is genuinely happening, but it's happening too slow and it's happening too late. So the recarbonization bit, which is where it gets sort of more interesting for me in a way, we have to take some of that CO2 we put into the atmosphere back out of the atmosphere because when it's in the atmosphere, it's massively detrimental to the prospects for humankind. And we want that CO2 back in terrestrial and ocean systems. So we need to lock it up again mm -hmm. in our natural systems, in the natural world. And that's where a lot of the solutions now are beginning to emerge, mm -hmm. whether we're talking about sort of on land, uh, reforestation, uh, stopping forest degradation stuff, looking very differently at soils. Mm -hmm. You were indicating to me before that you're a bit of an enthusiast about worms. Soil and worms go hand in hand. Yep. As soon as you can rebuild organic soil matter, organic carbon in particular in soils, you begin to see concentrations, the populations of all of these critical species in terms of soil come bounding back immediately. And worms are a very good indicator species for soil quality. Mm -hmm. So doing that, locking that up, that carbon back up in, in land-based systems, and then thinking about the marine stuff as well, which mm -hmm. is seagrasses and really exciting stuff about seaweeds and so on. Yeah, regenerative massive, farming. Exactly. Amazing. A massive potential. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, again, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, regenerative ocean farming. Right. It's a very, very sort of new area. It is a new area. But ironically, something actually we've been doing for centuries and centuries and centuries, but yeah. people don't really realise it. Um, and I think it's something like if 7% of global coastal waters were used for um, biofuel production yeah. uh, through using seaweeds yeah. to make biofuels, it could replace the entire world's fossil fuel industry, which is staggering. <laughs> So I like I like the big picture that you draw here. Sometimes I mean these. <laughs> but the thing is, I, it, it shows the potential promise of some of these industries. It, Obviously, that's a big it challenge. It does. It does. But um, one example I saw that I thought was really fantastic was with the US. So there's um, there's an amazing charity called Green Wave um, in America, which right. looked at this um, regenerative ocean farming, and they did a study with the I think it's with the World Bank or the World Economic Forum. And they found that if 5% of the US's coastal waters, just 5%, it could create 50 million jobs. Yeah. And I can't remember yeah. the amount of carbon it would remove, yeah. but it actively reduces you know, um, acidity of the oceans, it takes exactly. chemicals out, um, and it can pr provide huge amounts of very nutritious food as well. So some of these solutions, and also it's very well protected against climatic change, yeah. because you can lower the system in the event of a storm, yeah. and because it's in the sea, it's not affected by you know, heat waves or, or, or yeah. drought, obviously, um, because it's in the sea, um, as our, you know, terrestrial systems are. Yeah. So there's a lot of promise in those sort of systems to tackle some of these challenges and a way to shift our sort of food production in a way that's going to mutually support weaning ourselves off. Yeah, no, um, no, absolutely. These other systems. And the potential is huge. I mean, it, it is. is genuinely huge. And mm. the, oh God, are we going to get onto the, 
prevailing mindsets in our politicians who just can't see mm-hmm. the excitement behind some of this stuff. I mean, you spend a lot of time talking to pioneers in your particular area, people who can see just how impactful these solutions mm. would be and how sort of oven ready is sometimes the phrase that is used, but how, how immediately available to us they are. We're not talking about crazy blue sky technology that will only kick in by the, the end of the what, century. What's frustrating is we have all of the solutions have all of them. ready to go. Have all of them. They're all ready to go. Exactly. And actually they're just not being implemented. And the question is why? Um, and that's primarily political will. Hence it's the not third even, bit. It's not even funding. <laughs> Decarbonisation, yeah. recarbonisation, mm. and then we have to have a radical shift in political systems to force, I'm sorry, that is the word I'm going to use, to force today's politicians to apply themselves mm-hmm. to making these solutions available sooner rather than later. In fact, mm-hmm. as soon as possible. And without that, without that political shift, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these things would just get pushed out time after time. So many politicians today still spend most of their life looking backwards, mm-hmm. fossil fuel industries, extractive industries, all the sources of wealth in the 20th century, not sources of wealth for the 21st century. And we have to change this. We have to get our politicians focused on that future-oriented economy, which they are very reluctant to do at the moment. Very mm-hmm. reluctant. Indeed. I mean, and it, what, I, what frustrates me is a lot, some of the solutions are very simple. So we were talking before the podcast about um, London's urban greening factor. Yeah. Um, and also we've just talked about the water neutrality side of things. Those two policies could absolutely transform the way we develop and uh, regenerate parts yeah. of cities. They're very, very simple in principle. Delivery may be slightly more difficult, especially around the water neutrality one. But... If we embed those principles, we are preemptively stopping yeah. the water crisis that's coming to the UK. Yeah. We're extracting, I think, 700 million litres per day mm. over the recharge rate of our aquifers. Um, and we're having to dilute drinking water because of nutrient mm. issues. Yeah, exactly. So they're big problems now, but they're going to get exponentially worse as with extreme weather. Yeah. So if we do them now, we already have the metrics for them. We already have the systems in place and the solutions, but it's not policy. Yeah. If it was policy... We tackle all of those issues, and, in, and that, that will, you know, accelerate that culture yeah, change. Yeah. But it isn't happening. So if any politicians are listening, do that <laughs> and do it now, um, because the impact is, is huge. Those two simple policies will transform urban design. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And then you've put your finger on this thing. Why don't politicians regulate for these improvements, for these better outcomes? What? What holds them back from this? Mm-hmm. And it isn't just that they're stuck in the past. It's also that they are wedded to a pretty fundamentalist market-based ideology mm-hmm. that says that things work best when you do it in a market economy that is led by voluntary actions on the part of the key businesses involved in this. And really, for the last 40 years, we've seen governments pull away from the power of good, well-designed regulation and rely more and more on market-led change. Mm-hmm. And we can see the consequence of that 40 years on. Yeah. So the reason they're stuck, it's not, just, it's not just because they can't see the excitement of the future. They're also stuck in a model of progress that says markets are so much better than governments at providing the solutions we need. 
Mm-hmm. So if there is to be an upside from COVID, maybe the fact that the market would not have sorted out COVID, let's be honest, it's only when because government seized that obligation to intervene at different points to get on top of COVID. Let's hope more people are inclined to use the same power of intervention, regulatory intervention, to drive the climate solutions. Let's hope. Let's hope. How many times have I said that in the last 50 years? (laughs) Far too many, okay, but if you strip out the hope, then what's left? Exactly, yeah, and that hope's so important to to keep you motivated as much as anything. Seriously. And it's always just there, isn't it? It's just out of reach. But, um, But we are getting there. We are getting there. So on that note, should we talk more about the doom side of things? Because what what we'll try and do, (laughs) we have done that a lot, but I think what, again, what interested me in the book is I spend a lot of time obviously looking into the environment, but there's a lot in the book that shocked me and really surprised me with things I wasn't aware of at all. So one of those is around melting ice. So I'm just going to try and find an example. Maybe you want to provide a bit of a summary of that and then I'll throw out some points from the book. Yeah, I think that it, it would be stupid to say that concern about melting ice has crept up on people, but it, because that's not the case. I mean, climatologists have been very focused on this for a long time, but they've not been able to get traction with mm-hmm. policymakers. And I think that's because the rate of melting with our ice-based systems, that's ice sheets and glaciers and... Um, Arctic, Antarctic, all the rest of it, has still been quite, if you like, quite modest. Mm -hmm. We've only seen centimetre, sort of millimetre to centimetre increases in sea level as a consequence of the melting so far. So policymakers have tended to say, well, okay, so the sea level is rising a bit, but hey, it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. And only in the last five years, to be honest, has this focus shifted to saying, wait a minute, we're now beginning to see rates of melting so fast from the Arctic and the Antarctic that this shifts the whole expectation that we have about sea level rise. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a point here that sums that up quite well. So according to NASA, today's sea level rise is just 20 centimetres higher on average than it was in the 1900s, or in 1900. But the rate of increase is what has been speeding up, as eight of those 20 centimetres have impacted sea level since 1992. Yeah. yeah, that's what we have to focus on. Every year, the, the increase in sea level gets a little bit higher. Yes. So you can see then how you can push from two centimetres or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. If every year it's a little bit more, three mm-hmm. centimetres, four centimetres, then you can push, you can see how sea level then, driven both by the melting ice and by what is called thermal expansion, because mm-hmm. as the oceans get warmer, they expand. Mm-hmm. So you've got these two big factors. You can see how that pushes the projections through to what is now the standard consensus from climate scientists, which is a one meter, an average one meter sea level rise by the end of the century. That's the best bet from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's the best bet. Mm-hmm. I want to just stress that because the worst case is two meters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is... <laughs> you did and, ask me for a bit of doom and gloom. Yeah. And I'm just giving you that because at one meter, that is devastating for hundreds of millions of people all around mm-hmm. the world. Think of the number of cities that are within a meter 
of average sea level. Well, majority. Majority. Yeah. So push that up to two meters and you are entitled to get very gloomy indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what also is important to understand is that's between now and 2100 and that rate of increase it's just exactly. Keeps yeah, it doesn't stop in, there. In pace. It doesn't stop there. So, and that's what's incredibly <laughs> troubling. Um, so for example, Antarctica. So this is several hundred years away, but we've got to think of our ancestors here. You know, we're talking about humanity and the survival of humanity. So, so this is just Antarctica. If the ice on Antarctica melts, it's a 60 meter increase in sea level. Yeah. Which is unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. And you're right, a lot of people take comfort from the fact that that could take centuries to unfold completely. Um, but, but ultimately, that, that is still the, the, the future we have to contemplate. We can't just discount it because it's only going to happen over a long period of time. It's still going to happen. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. That's, and this is the, this is the thing in the language that the scientists have used now. And, it, and the language story for climate scientists is such an important one. Because bit by bit, they've had to, they've had to revise the language they use to get these messages through to politicians. Mm -hmm. So in the big report that came out at the end of last year and this year, this is called the sixth assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel, this word, irreversible, was used for the first time in many instances that we are either already at or we're very close to tipping points which would be irreversible. Mm -hmm. That is the scariest stuff because it's probably not irreversible in the great span of things. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of years because all these systems are immensely dynamic and they mm -hmm. keep changing back and forth. So scientists are quite rightly cautious about using the word irreversible. But what they usually do is say irreversible for the, you know, the next few hundred years, which mm -hmm. is essentially the bit that really... Is important to us. Is important to <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah. And I've noticed the use of this word irreversible because it is a, it's a chilling word because we like to think, okay, we're screwing it up now, but look, we're getting smarter. We're beginning to see these changes for what they are. We've got our heads, starting to get our heads around the crisis. And we then have it in our power to put that right. Yes, we do. We do. We really have it in our power to put it right. But once a change becomes irreversible, it is not in our power to put it right. So when the green ice sheet starts to melt, and the melting, we're swapping out of the northern hemisphere, and the melting becomes so extreme that there's nothing humankind could do to stop the whole of the Greenland ice sheet disappearing over time. Mm -hmm. And that's six meters yeah. of sea level rise, not 60, but six. six. That's it. Well, this is the same. You know, I was just reading a point here about um, the Western Antarctic ice sheet. Yeah. You know, if the, if the glacier at the front of that goes, exactly. that's 3.5 to 5 meters. Exactly. So all of these things really rapidly add up. And you, I've seen it on the news several times lately going, oh, actually, that glacier is not looking so stable now. And of course, what we've got to think of, we're talking about um, ice adjacent to the sea. But yeah. that's not the only ice that's of, a, of you know, serious concern to a lot of people. So, you know, I'm just trying to find where it, where it was here. But, you know, in here you talk about, um, okay, so here we go, the Himalayan glaciers. So we're going to the roof of the world now. Yeah. Uh, well, the high point of the world. Um, 
So a published report in 2019 showed that the Himalayan glaciers were melting twice as fast between 2000 and 2016 as between 1975 and 2000. So this is to do with increased temperature in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is incredibly worrying because that feeds six of the biggest rivers in this region of the world, which are responsible for 1.5 and 2 billion people's worth of drinking water. Yeah. Drinking water and water for irrigation. Yes. And the scale of that, honestly, I mean, I know. But this is, this is the realms of national security, though. And that's why you see this national security is starting to come into it. So I, I remember reading a document from, um, I think it was um, the Secretary of Defense for the US, and he was saying climate change is the single biggest Absolutely. risk to national security yeah. and national borders because you know, it will lead to mass migration. And we're already seeing that happen now yeah. with food crises in Africa, uh, leading to more people to come to Europe. Um, and it's only gonna get worse as these things become exacerbated. So, you know, across the globe, it's not just people coming to Europe or the UK, that's people shifting from China to India and vice versa, and Mongolia to Russia, yeah. and, um, you know, the yeah. Asia Pacific to Australia and, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. there's this huge range of issues that are just going to cause, you know, societies to collapse, basically, under the pressure. Okay. We've bottomed this out now, I think. So we've got to the point where <laughs> unless we do what we need to do, these things are in the scope of possibilities for humankind. And that is chilling enough, frankly. But it is funny you mentioned the people who are starting to get really worried about this. Many people in the defense industry or the defense establishment, if you like, national security, begin to say, this is, this is so big that if we don't start to rethink what we mean by national security, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter how many billions of dollars we put into our armed forces, this stuff is just gonna overwhelm our ability to provide people with a sense of security that they need. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's quite interesting. You can come at this from a different perspective and, and security issues is definitely one of the ways in which policymakers are having to rethink this. It is mm -hmm. really important that that's starting to happen. It is, but again, it's, it's those crises that lead to that shift in thinking yeah. um, and give it an impetus to actually get on with it yeah. and get these things resolved, um, terrible as it is. But I think hopefully we'll reach a point of critical mass where we realise actually there's such a myriad of issues we have yeah. to rethink yeah, our yeah. overall strategy. Um, and again, you know, we have a lot of solutions to these issues. It's just implementing yeah. them quickly. Yeah, yeah. So we can go back to a, a positive point. So we'll go negative and positive all <laughs> the way through, I think. Sorry to interrupt, but we have a quick message from one of our sponsors. And it's that we're thrilled to announce that Marshalls is the sponsor of this episode. As the UK's leading supplier of sustainable concrete and natural stone products for the built environment, Marshalls is committed to doing the right things for the right reasons, delivered in the right way, ethically and sustainably. From fairly traded stone to low carbon concrete bricks, Marshalls believes we can create better spaces, putting people, communities, and the environment first. Find out more about the firm's green initiatives in our podcast links below. Um, so the next thing I wanted to go into a bit more is around energy. So there's a lot of points in here on energy that I've picked up and they're actually very positive. Mm. So, and again, I wasn't so much surprised by this, but I was impressed by some of the examples. Mm. Um, you know, for example here, so in 2019 in the UK, one of the largest solar plants in the UK came online uh, in Cambridgeshire, which is going to provide enough energy for 15,000 households. Um, and what's amazing about that is it received no subsidy whatsoever. Yeah. So this just goes to show that actually it, without the government, things are being done. 
which is great. But it just shows that a bit of impetus could massively accelerate that process again. It is symbolic, more than symbolic. It's actually, in political terms, it's really important that we've, we can see a way through this without constant use of public money. Mm. Because it's, it, it really is critical that these energy alternatives deliver the electricity and other energy services that we need without constantly having to be subsidised by the taxpayer. And the brilliant thing about wind, onshore wind, as well as offshore wind and solar, is that we're very close now to not needing any subsidy at all on an mm -hmm. ongoing basis. And solar is particularly interesting because obviously the critics of this thing say, oh, well, the sun doesn't shine at night, obviously, and the wind doesn't blow a lot, so we're, these things are not going to provide a solution. All the big solar developments now are solar plus storage. Mm -hmm. So when the sun is shining and it's needed on the grid, then they use it on the grid. If it's not needed on the grid, they store it. And then it can be put back onto the grid during peak periods or when that electricity is needed. So solar, onshore wind, plus storage is the cheapest way now of delivering the new electricity we need. Mm -hmm. Offshore wind is still a bit more expensive because it's, it's an extraordinary engineering success story for the UK. These enormous, I don't know if you've ever... You, well, they tow them out of the harbour, oh they massive floating turbines. Incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah. And they, they're still getting bigger. So I think we're now, I think the biggest turbine now is 15 megawatts, one single turbine, 15 wow. megawatts, something like that. And, but, the, but the important thing is, with, with that, is the fact that they're not so much just off the coast, they're out on the Pushing shelf. Pushing it way and, out now. And that's yeah. really important because it has a more consistent wind yeah um and there's less turbulence in the wind because yeah. obviously land mass distorts the wind flow. exactly yeah. um yeah so it's those engineering solutions are just making us be able to push further and further and further yeah. to make to drive efficiencies and consistencies in those energy systems and i saw this week people are getting a bit annoyed with me but i can't remember if it's a sand or a salt <laughs> battery i don't know if you've seen this yeah there's, there's a sand battery, sand battery yeah, yeah. So this has been developed in, I think, Sweden. Yeah. Um, and that has a lot of promise for domestic energy yeah, storage. absolutely. Which is fantastic for, for, develop, for new developments because actually what it means is the solar energy can be used to heat the sand. Yeah. Um, and then that holds its temperature for a very long period of time. Yeah, weeks, not days. That's it's it. Fascinating. I think even longer in some cases. So yeah. you can actually store enough energy in there to provide some of your heating over the winter yeah. and, you know, and, and subsidize that cost. So there's a lot of these new integrated solutions coming through that just tie into one another and support one another to make the whole thing more resilient and exactly. more cost effective. And I keep telling people this is really exciting stuff and they think, oh, storage, batteries. Mm -hmm. That's not exciting. Well, the trouble, is with, the trouble is with batteries, it immediately goes to that chemical issue. Yeah, so we've got to find concerned. alternative storage mm -hmm. technologies and we are beginning to see really very creative ways of addressing this kind of issue. Mm -hmm. um, Batteries are a bit of a problem because they are very clunky bits of kit and mm -hmm. you need a lot of raw materials to make for the most efficient batteries today. And Finite materials as well. Finite materials that have to be mined somewhere and often they have to be mined in countries where mining regulation is pretty negligible. Oh, and for me, this is a big... I, I'm a... Yeah, I mean, I, since, I, since I wrote Hope in Hell... Um, I, was, I am already sceptical about the EV revolution, mm -hmm. the electric 
vehicle revolution. And I was skeptical at the start because the idea that we would get rid of one car that is using petrol or diesel and replace it with another car that is using electricity. So you'd have a like-for-like -like swap, get rid of the fossil fuel-based vehicle and swap in an electric vehicle, which is what some people think the solution to the, the transport the crisis really looks like, the fossil fuel-based transport crisis. That is not going to work mm -hmm. because the raw material demand to produce an electric vehicle is, plus its battery, obviously, is still huge. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the amount of new raw materials, including some of the rare earths and precious metals, which battery and other storage technologies depend on, the mining requirement is just vast. Mm -hmm. And it's already pretty impactful in many, many countries around the world, particularly in China. Mm -hmm. So for me, don't get overexcited about a substitution transport strategy. Get really excited about integrated transport mobility solutions for cities where you can combine state-of-the-art public transport systems with far better facilities for cyclists and pedestrians and e-scooters and things like this and use car clubs, car share schemes, which will all be electric cars, obviously. But if you have a community car share scheme, the number of vehicles you need per head of population is massively reduced. Yeah, it is. And I think what what's, I found interesting about that is I kind of always was quite skeptical about the car share side of things because people want their own car. It's kind of part of yeah, our society. They do. It's part of, um, yeah. But what's very interesting is when you look at a city like London, when you look at wealth, in most of the country, wealth is, you can determine wealth by the number of cars. So in the countryside, yeah. the more cars you have, the wealthier you are. In the city, the less cars you have, the wealthier you are. It flips <laughs> on its head completely, which is incredibly interesting, um, you know, as a metric to determine wealth, yeah. judge wealth by. But well, the other thing that surprised me on that is I thought, because you just don't really see it in the UK, and I've often thought, why? You know, I, I sometimes have to rent a car for work, um, and it's, in, it's really expensive. Which, is, which I've always found odd. But I went to, I go to Russia quite a lot, not now, but I used to go to Russia a lot, as I've already mentioned, my wife's from Russia. Um, and they actually have a very, very big car share network. Do they? Yeah, very big Zipcar. I did not know that. Uh, well, I think, I think it's, well, it's not called Zipcar there, but it's the same thing. Okay. Um, and my brother-in-law went a very long time with no car, only using these Zipcars. Right. And they are everywhere. Right. Everywhere. And they were just sort of saying, you know, because it's not the wealthiest country as well. Yeah, yeah. They were saying, why would I have that hassle? Why have the hassle of, you know, the insurance? Exactly. When we actually don't need the car that often. You know, if we want to go away for the weekend, we get it. And I think now, again, because we've shifted to more home working, like recently I've been using my car a lot, but actually, obviously over COVID, I barely used it. But probably 80% of the time, it still spends half yeah. the drive. Yeah, and you yeah. think, well, what's the point of spending all this money on buying yeah. a new car? Especially as now, as times are getting harder, I think I hope that will be another impetus to sort of push some of these schemes forward. And for young people, this is just becoming a no-brainer. I mean, they, I'm, it's just... I mean, know, my, in my not family... Not that you're not young, of course, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> no, I'm that, talking that, about... Yeah. You know, for, I may not look it, but... <laughs> <laughs> for kids today, they're sort of thinking to themselves, whoa, this is... It's so obvious. Well, the, the point is, the point I was going to make is, I'm 29. My brother is, I think, 20... I don't know how old he is, 23, 24, something like that. Um, <laughs> he... And my cousins who are younger, slightly younger, none of them have driving licenses. 
They're all over 18. None of them have driving licenses. Oh, they haven't even got a license. And, oh, yeah, and, but they're not the only people. I know I'm meeting more and more young people that just yeah. go, why do I need it? Yeah. Why do I need it? And I just think, yeah, fair enough, because actually most of their work is online. If they, most of their friends live in cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just think, you know, I'm, okay, I'd love to see my friends more often, but in reality, because of the nature of, I think partly that generation, because they've had this more online yeah. upbringing, they're more used to communicating online perhaps than my generation that's only slightly older. Um, and actually they just don't, I mean, some people do obviously, but I found it more and more and more of, as I travel around, yeah, yeah, that yeah. younger people are not doing that. So it's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out over the next yeah. few years too. Yeah, well, I think for me, that's, that's an inevitable shift because the, what, you, what you have to look at in all of these things is what is the convergence of different factors that make these huge societal shifts actually mm -hmm. happen? And here we've got at least three hugely important factors. The first is we have to get out of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. The second is that technology is now enabling much more sophisticated, easy to access, affordable technology around things like car sharing schemes. And thirdly, young people are beginning to say, I don't want this overhead in my life and I probably don't need it. Mm -hmm. So can I find an elegant way of getting what I need without that very significant financial commitment? So you've got three massive societal and ecological factors all converging in the same place, yeah. which that's the point where these shifts become irreversible. So we were talking about tipping points in natural systems, mm -hmm. scary stuff, because once they tip, that might be irreversible. People need to be more hopeful about irreversible tipping points in society. And I'm just as interested in tracking societal tipping points as I am in tracking physical tipping points. Because in cases like this, you think that is gonna happen. Mm -hmm. It might take longer than would be desirable. It, you know, we might not actually see it on the streets of every town or city until 2030, whatever it is, but it is gonna happen. Mm -hmm. It's harder in rural communities, and we just have yes. to take a tiny step back, particularly for people who don't have access to public transport in rural areas. Then it becomes a kind of, uh, a form of rural imprisonment that mm -hmm. they don't have access to the solutions that people can so easily get in cities. That's a much harder nut to crack for me. Yeah, it is a big challenge. I mean, we, we do a lot of rural development um, and work with a lot of developers in, in rural areas tackling various issues. And one of the things that we often talk about is, yeah, you know, designing for cars or designing for EV. And we sort yeah. of try and change that conversation. We shouldn't be designing for EV, we should be designing for no cars. But, but there's still hard. a lot of, it's it hard. is very hard. Well, the thing is, it's not necessarily practicable. No. It's practical in cities, yes. but it's not necessarily practical in, and yeah. a lot of new development in cities has no provision for cars. Yeah, exactly. We're working we on are. loads of projects where there's yeah. no parking at all, yeah. apart from for disabled people, otherwise there's none. Um, because they're tied into these transport networks. Yeah. And again, you know, those car share options become really viable then. So, it begs this question of how do we tackle rural development going yeah. forward? So my view is it has to shift into more of sort of a higher density of uh, rural 
dwelling. So there's more access to more green space, yeah. but the actual development itself is denser, which means you can then start integrating these transport links into it. Exactly. The challenge is that's historic. there's no historical precedent for that in the UK, which makes it a very difficult political and planning challenge to achieve that. But it is most probably the way it's going to have to go to stop huge amounts of sprawl, tackle these infrastructure mm. issues. Um, and especially in the countryside, it tends to be older mm. people. Yeah, yeah, no. It's... So those, that infrastructure becomes more, even more important. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a big onus on actually having to rethink that strategy Absolutely. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know this because you've got colleagues in Europe for whom this idea of basic planning geared to reduced vehicle use and integrated transport and mobility solutions is just second nature. Yeah. And has been for, okay, I'm not going to say many, many decades, but that has been the go-to default planning optimum for a long time. Mm-hmm. And here in the UK, we've been stuck with models of development, economic development, even in urban areas, which are just way off the pace still. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, just last week I was talking about some projects in um, Birmingham, where they're starting to build on their greenfield sites. Yeah, no, Birmingham's but actually... Not, but they're not utilising their brownfield sites effectively. Well, it's actually, I shouldn't say Birmingham, it's, out, it's the areas around Birmingham. Right, okay. Birmingham City itself seems to be a bit more on the ball. Yeah. But there's technical challenges there that people don't necessarily understand and there are resolutions to it but some of that technical knowledge doesn't always seem to come through the council but what's interesting with um, some of these European examples we have an episode with Edge Urban Design uh, we talk a bit about this Um, great episode if you want to find out more about what's going on in, in urban design and the urban side of things and the challenges there but what happens I think it's in Finland some of those Scandinavian countries they approach development completely the opposite way to us. So we have landowners that sell a bit of land, a developer buys it, they try and build that bit of land, that's it. In some of those countries, what they do is they designate, essentially the council takes over areas of land. Then they sell those bits of land to developers yeah. as part of a joined up strategy. <laughs> and they put some of that infrastructure in first. Yeah. So as soon as you move to the area, there's already a train station. Yeah. That infrastructure goes in before it can be sold. So there's this kind of longer term viability and strategy in place to tackle those issues, but we just don't do that. We just don't do that for the same reason. That, that would work against market principles. That's it. The, and I, but I think the so trouble is we do have a very difficult cultural shift because you essentially end, essentially end up going into sort of compulsory purchase yeah. or, or something like that. To yeah, it can be. I mean, it, just do it. So there are challenges, and obviously, you know, people may have different views on that. Yeah. Um, but there are solutions to those problems, is what we're saying, really. Yeah. Um, no, no, and it, it just takes an alternative view to try and tackle some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've talked a bit about a bit about energy. While we're on, well, we're still we've gone a bit more into urban design, but going back to energy slightly, um, we've talked a lot about renewables, and I wanted to get your opinion on nuclear because. I've heard you talk about it before, and you have a very interesting take on it, again, that I hadn't really come across. And one of the points you made in, I can't remember what it was, what the talk was, but you were commenting about the impact on fish from nuclear. And I think one of the statistics that came up, one of the new nuclear sites in Wales that's being looked at, Mm. is estimated to result in, I think it's half a million Mm. fish killed per day, yeah, is, no, it, is that right? Well, some of the figures that people are looking at now are pretty off the wall, but mm. yeah, the fish kill story is 
is a big part of it because the, the nuclear reactors on the coast, they need the seawater for cooling. Mm -hmm. So as you suck the seawater in, unless you've got very sensitive systems to ensure that the fish aren't being sucked in as well as the water, your fish kill rates are unbelievably high. So that has focused people's attention on some of the local downside, biodiversity-related downsides of nuclear. But I mean, to, to be absolutely honest, that's not those aren't my main concerns. No, I know they're not. I just it just it's, was something that struck me as something I've never ever no, come it's across true. before. It's, it's, it's mad. I thought it might be an interesting segue it's into the wider discussion. It. it is mad, and actually, there's big concern around that with the new power station being proposed for Suffolk, the Sizewell Sea power station. Mm -hmm. Big concerns. Um, my my. My beef with nuclear is cost, waste, and risk. And the cost story is, I don't need to talk about that. We, it is a monumentally expensive way of generating a kilowatt hour. It's just completely crazy. And nobody disputes that any longer. Levelized cost of energy calculations show that nuclear is by far the most expensive. And why would you inflict that on people? So I won't bother about that one. The waste issue for me is a moral issue. Mm -hmm because it's us inflicting a problem on future generations which we've not been able to sort out before. And I'm just giving you, I've just literally in the last week been doing, updating my figures on this. So when you're talking about managing nuclear waste and decommissioning nuclear reactors, the sums involved are completely staggering. So according to the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, it's 130 billion pounds to decommission our Magnox reactors. Hmm. It'll be at least another 50 billion pounds to decommission our next generation reactors, advanced gas reactors. And then there will be another 60 to 70 billion pounds to build this geological disposal facility to get rid of our high level and intermediate level nuclear waste. Okay, so those are ballpark figures coming from the government, not NGO figures. That's 250 billion pounds, that's a quarter of a trillion pounds, which will be paid by young people in the future, indefinitely into the future. And you just think, has anybody ever asked whether this is a morally acceptable way mm -hmm. of producing the electricity that we need, that you're gonna stick that bill on young people? Mm -hmm. So that really bugs me. And then the last thing, the risk story, well, I'm not going to go on to that in much detail. I don't actually mean risk as in reactors blowing up as in Chernobyl or Fukushima style. I mean risk in times of war and mm -hmm. cyber threats to national security. And probably not the right conversation for now, but I was interested to see that the regulatory body here in the UK has just demanded that EDF, the company that's building Hinkley Point C, has got an inadequate set of protections of defenses against the risk of cyber attack. And it is going to have sure. to go back and proof those cyber systems, cyber protection systems, to ensure that malign foreign powers, brackets, Russia, China, whatever, is not able to take down a nuclear reactor simply by using hmm. cyber intervention. So I get quite nervous about cyber threats to the future of humankind. They get worse and worse, and mm -hmm. that stuff pretty much scares the life out of me. 
Yeah, well, it's really troubling when it can be done at random. Exactly. You know, preemptively or anything like I that. I mean, honestly. So, well, yeah. and obviously if you're in a war, so people have rightly been focused on the war in Ukraine with Russia putting at risk the Zaporizhia power station, nuclear mm. power station, um, with what can only be described as near misses. Yeah. Where some of the shells that were landing near Zaporizhia could have actually affected one of the operating reactors or missile strikes just gone wrong, whatever mm. it might be. So, you know. That's, I mean, and even the disturption, you know, around Chernobyl. You know, even, oh, my God, that know, was so interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Just a spike, you know, people tracking just, these radiation levels. That's just moving around and, there and you just think, oh, God. I know. Yeah, what's, what's going on there? And I mean, the thing is, it doesn't take much to cause a major crisis. And if there's already a crisis taking place, yeah. resolving that issue becomes even harder, which then spirals, you know. Yeah. Again, you, you, there's so many issues that can arise from that. It's really, really yeah. troubling. The one thing I wanted to ask you about as well with nuclear is I always hear about thorium reactors as kind of being the solution to nuclear, small-scale yeah. thorium. Yeah, I'm probably not the right person to ask about that. I mean, but people who, because I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, let alone a nuclear Me, scientist. So occasionally I have to just go, whoa, I don't know. People have been talking about thorium for the last, um, uh, thorium as an alternative to uranium yeah, yeah. as the principal fuel for nuclear reactors. They've been talking about thorium since the start of the nuclear industry back in the 1950s. Nobody's quite cracked it as uh, an answer to the problem and the people who really some of the people who I trust in the uh, nuclear campaigning organizations have looked in detail at the thorium alternative and they've come to a set of conclusions as well maybe but in order to build one thorium fueled nuclear reactor it's probably about 25 years away anyway oh really yeah hmm. so these things take forever to build yes they cost more money than we can almost dream of. And we need to get this stuff sorted as affordably and cost-effectively as we can. So just take nuclear out of the wish list. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a really interesting point because when you compare that to renewables, yeah, I'm trying to find exactly. one of the points in here. Um, can't find it. But one of the points was very interesting about the rate of change that we are making with renewables. Yeah. And that's the thing. You know, when you're talking those huge figures... Imagine what that kind of investment in renewables Absolutely. could, you know, the, if they brought back the, um, the payback tariffs for um, solar, yeah. those kind of things, it would, it would really rapidly, especially now, it Absolutely. would rapidly accelerate people it would. shifting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it doesn't seem to be happening. So <laughs> it, I can't really say much more on it. It I seems know, logical this, to the, me. The, the, this nuclear, it, I, it's a, in my opinion, it's just a massive hype, which I, I don't actually think we'll see another nuclear reactor in new reactor in the UK ever after Sizewell, uh, sorry, after Hinkley Point is finished. That unless EDF collapses before then because of the weight of its debts, <laughs> Hinkley Point will be finished. I don't think we'll ever see a reactor at Sizewell, hmm. personally. I mean, who's going to invest in it? Yeah. EDF is going to put up 20 million. The government's going to, well, 20%, sorry. Government's going to put up 20%. Who's going to provide the remaining 60%? Yeah. Well, they'll sting consumers as much as they can for that, but that won't produce more than about another 20, 30%. You've still got to find independent investors who are going to pour money into that scheme with no prospect of it coming online 
until well into the 2030s. That's it. I mean, it comes back to um, a lot of investors now looking at ESGs, aren't they? Um, yeah. Environmental sustainability yeah. goals. So yeah. um, if it doesn't meet those, that criteria, they're going to find it very hard. Yeah. And it sounds like they can't justify that. So I'd be very surprised. Yeah. I really would. So should we move on to the food side of things mm. and what's, what's going on there? Because there's some interesting points in here. We talk about food a lot throughout the episode in various, with various guests talking about agriculture, even trees um, and forestry and how that needs to shift. There's a lot about it in the worm episode yep. we've done. So it'd be good to get your take on it and see kind of a high level what your kind of views on it are. And I'll see if yeah. I can find some interesting points in here as well to bring up. It is such a crazy go-to area of controversy at the moment for good reason, because I guess, I mean, I, I, I guess the headline that people have come to terms with over the last five years mm -hmm. is that our food system is now the biggest single driver of destruction on planet Earth, more mm -hmm. than fossil fuels. And that's a pretty startling realization for people to come to. Agriculture, of course, uses a huge amount of fossil fuels anyway. Mm -hmm. But if you put all, all of the destructive impact of our current food and farming system together, it's actually driving more destruction from a climate point of view, more destruction from a biodiversity point of view, more destruction from a pollution point of view, and more negative impact on human beings through impact on diets, obesity mm -hmm. and diabetes and so on. So this, our food system is just this massively destructive thing in the middle of our lives. Mm -hmm. So not surprisingly, there is now a huge focus, I think very positive focus on how do we get ourselves out of that trap and lots of very creative ideas about ways in which we can do this, um, both at the national scale and much more um, locally. So, I, uh, there are, I mean, I don't know where to start because it's so, such a huge picture, but there are two big trends that are going to happen anyway, and the big trends will lead to lots of little shifts down the system. But the two big trends are massively reduced dependence on animal-based proteins, mm -hmm. so meat, dairy, and marine protein, and a shift to plant-based alternatives. And that's already happening. It's a trend that will grow and grow and grow because we cannot cope with the amount of hugely destructive factory farming systems that we have today, intensive livestock systems. That's trend one. Trend two, I hope, is we move away from this ultra-processed food which is so detrimental to human health and is mm -hmm. one of the principal drivers of obesity and uh, other dietary um, health problems. And those two shifts alone, away from meat, basically, and away from ultra-processed food would revolutionize the food system. And it would simultaneously come up with, as I tried to touch on the book, lots of answers on issues like climate change mm -hmm. and biodiversity and pollution issues and dietary and health issues. Because we, they, again, you go back, you raised this right at the start, you have to look at the system as a whole. You have to mm -hmm. think about it in an integrated way. That's it. Absolutely. And I think one of the things, again, something that shocked me in here was around the hidden cost of UK food. Oh, God. Well, when right. you start so doing can, this I, can I just read this paragraph? Because <laughs> for me, I found it really interesting. So um, there was a study undertaken on, on the cost of UK food, basically the hidden cost behind it, as the title suggests. So it says here that UK consumers spend £120 billion on food every year. 
Yet there are serious environmental and health-related costs that generate a further £116 billion in cost. Significantly, these costs are not paid for by food businesses and the farming practices that cause them, nor are they included in the retail price. Instead, they are being passed on to the public through taxation, lost income due to ill health, and the cost of mitigating and adapting to climate change and environmental degradation. In effect, that means UK customers are paying almost twice for their food, despite being told by the media that food has never been cheaper. Yeah, exactly. It's tough because it's so difficult to explain it because cheap food has become a sort of non-negotiable thing for politicians. Can you imagine a politician going out there and saying, you know what, part of the problem here is that we're just pushing and pushing and pushing for cheap, regardless of what the additional costs are mm-hmm. on health, on the environment, on the climate. And we have got to get to a different state of mind where we start talking about healthy as the critical determinant, healthy food from healthy soils leading to healthier human beings. That, if we could just swap cheap food for healthy food and understand that health is a planetary thing as much as a personal dietary thing, then we would be beginning to change things enormously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think another point here that caught me was... um, So that's the side around the the economic side, but one of the big issues is around, which we've already talked about, is the regeneration of natural systems. Now, we talk a lot about this in a lot of episodes, um, particularly one with um, Ted and Jill, about ancient trees and how the UK landscape used to be. And with Merrick, Denton, Thompson, who I think you know. Oh, yes, I know, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. So about the future of agricultural systems. And we talk a lot in those episodes about agroforestry or silvopasture um, or... um, oak pasture, um, which is what Ted likes to call it. So there's a lot of different ways that people view this, but they all demonstrate the importance of which changing the way we grow food is becoming more important. And you mentioned earlier around um, this issue of these increased temperatures and exposure and all of these things affect crops. These agroforestry systems, I I call it agroforestry, it's a general term. Yeah, no, me too. Um, uh... But other people call it different things, just so people are aware. But... (laughs) That holds a solution to a lot of challenges, but that also leans, leans into this political will. So for one example is we've got huge afforestation targets. We should scrap that, in my view, and change it to canopy co- um, cover targets, right. which would support urban forestry and yep, agroforestry, no, whereas at the moment there's no support for it. Um, and here, this just, this just covers the point here. So if our grazing land was allowed to revert to natural ecosystems and the land currently being used to grow feed for livestock, which is 55% of the UK's cropland, Produced for grains, beans, fruit, nuts, and vegetables for humans, this switch would be equivalent altogether to absorbing nine years of our total emissions. Exactly. Which is staggering. Staggering. And that ratio is massively greater in yeah. countries like China, Brazil, yeah. America. So the option opportunity for change there is 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 start startling. But even if we didn't do all of that, if we were to just introduce this agroforestry system which essentially would make those processes much more efficient and encourage um, ecosystem restoration yeah. alongside that, not to the same degree as rewilding perhaps, but there's still that huge opportunity to tap into that massive carbon saving, ecological restoration, whilst providing a more secure food supply. So again, there's, there's, we have all these solutions. Yeah. And when it comes to this type of solution, it's something that has to be implemented now because the time it takes for those trees to grow Exactly. Is, is ticking away. So it's, and it's about protecting that soil and all those kind of things. So 
again, we've got these solutions, but they just need to sort of be brought forward. And there has to be this change of thinking and some of these higher level policies to drive that. Yeah, and I don't know whether the, the episodes that you've done that have talked to people at the sharp end of this, mm -hmm. so the people who are actually responsible for changes in land use, either around food production or around forestry or whatever else it might be, I don't know whether they've surfaced their massive frustration about being on the receiving end of tons of criticism about the continuing destruction of modern farming, but having to work with a government that will not come up with an alternative vision for land use in the UK, which would allow farmers to transition to all those kind of mm -hmm. alternatives that you're talking about. And I really feel for farmers today because I think they've been suckered into thinking there's a kind of post-CAP, common agricultural policy world, which would be the sort of nirvana equivalent, and that subsidies would be shifted to allow them to do some of the things they couldn't do. Well, we don't get any indication of that at the moment, about how those subsidies are going to be shifted. So a lot of farmers who need to be planning over a four, five, six-year cycle because of their crop rotations and so on, have no idea whether the government is actually going to be supporting transitions of that kind, transition to low-carbon, much higher quality, biodiversity-friendly, healthier farming practices. And if they're not going to get that support, quite honestly, many of them won't survive. No, I mean, we're looking... They at, just won't survive. We're doing lots of work with farmers at the moment that are trying to diversify their estates. Exactly. I.e. build on them, um, because they need that subsidy to support the farming practice. So they're going to be potentially large parts of land are going to be sold off. And a friend of mine is doing a lot of work on, with elms. Um, and what that may look like, which is the environmental yeah. land management scheme to replace the common agricultural policy, uh, as that has already you know gone. Um, so there's a lot happening in how that could look, but the problem is, as you say, there's no certainty on what it's, it's actually going to be. And again, we have evidence. This is what's so frustrating. There's so many good examples, like in Costa Rica, um, where they pay for the services that the yeah. land provides. And that's absolutely a logical way to do it because it drives investment in sustainable exactly. land management, which, return, which brings return to the taxpayer. Yeah. And by mitigating flood risk, improving health, better access, yeah. all of those, better food, all those kind of things. So, shall we end on, end on that point with, with food? <laughs> um, and we'll try and end on a, on a positive note. So, one positive thing to take from all of this is we have all the solutions, we just need the will. Yeah. And we have the funding. The funding is there, I believe. It's yeah. just not... Yeah. being used. Um, it's the will that is what's required. Yeah. And that, I mean, I guess that's where in, in, in the book, I've tried to suggest to people that their hope depends on finding ways to change that political will. Mm -hmm. Because you're right, most of the, not all, but most of the technology that we need is there. There isn't really a, a shortage of capital assets to put into this transition. There's a huge amount of money which could become available to underpin this transition. But as you say, the political will is still lacking. So then you have to ask the question, what's going to change that? Mm -hmm. And that's where I come back to this combination of political elements here, particularly young people, who as the state of the world becomes clearer and clearer to them, and the impact it's going to have on their lives becomes clearer and clearer. Those young people are getting more and more incensed 
by the degree to which our model of economic development essentially depends on stealing their future. Mm -hmm. So for me, young people are right at the heart of this, putting pressure on politicians to change political will. I don't want to make it out that they're the only people who need to do anything, because obviously from my point of view, we've got the obligation to do everything we can, but I can see how young people will play a bigger and bigger part in that process, which is one of the things that does give me a great deal of additional hope. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think, are there any specific projects that um, you're seeing come through as well? Is there anything else um, project-wise or technology-wise that's kind of surprised you lately that's given you a lot of hope or for the future? <laughs> or is it is that something to read the book about? <laughs> I could just say that, couldn't I? It is, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, it's counterintuitive for me because I've never really seen myself as a technology enthusiast. Mm -hmm. In fact, if anything, I've always been a bit of a techno-skeptic because too many people rely on technology to get them off the hook of doing the bigger changes that they yeah, need. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not going to give you another great technology opportunity, which for me is too easy to go to. Um, but what does give me hope, to be honest, is the change in the demographics. Mm -hmm. And even if you look at younger politicians coming through in the system now and standing for office, you can already see that much of what counts as orthodoxy today is just seen as insanity mm -hmm. in their mind. So there is a demographic shift going on. Mm -hmm. um, that does give me hope. Is it fast enough? Nope. Can it accelerate? Yes. Will it? Question mark. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think that's a fantastic a point to, to finish on. And thank you so much for your no, time. Thank you all. for having us in your home. Mm -hmm. Really appreciate it. And um, look forward to potentially catching up at yep. some point in the future. Indeed. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed our conversation enormously. It was great. I hope you've enjoyed the episode so far. Here's a quick message from one of our sponsors. Make sustainability a priority throughout the design process with a suite of tools built specifically for landscape architecture and design. Vectorworks gives you the freedom to follow your imagination wherever it may lead. With remarkably flexible software that integrates BIM for landscape and GIS workflows, sketch, model, and document in a single tool with the world's most design-centric BIM solution. Discover Vectorworks Landmark and design without limits. Visit vectorworks.net to learn more. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in finding out more about climate science and energy opportunities, then check out our episode with BY4, where we talk about atmospheric change, and the Eden Project Part 2, where we talk about new energy opportunities, like how we can produce 20% of our energy from a piece of rock in Cornwall. Um, Please share to anyone you think may be interested. And a huge thank you to our sponsors, Marshalls and Vectorworks, our kind supporters, Gillian Goodson Design and the Birmingham Botanical Gardens, and of course, NDLA and Monster Don for powering this episode. 